Hi everyone, welcome to The Last Sisyphus, a podcast dedicated to fiction and philosophy. I'm your host, Colin Jones, and today I want to talk about Jose Emilio Pacheco's 1981 novella, Battles in the Desert. There was, unfortunately, no super interesting way I came upon Pacheco's work. I simply reached out to New Directions Publishing, my favorite independent publisher at the moment, and asked if they would send me an advanced copy of a book for review. And they did. That is, effectively, the whole story. I did not know what Battles in the Desert was necessarily about when I decided that it was the book I wanted to review. I had heard of Pacheco's work before, but I did not know what I was getting myself into. And that's a good thing. I say all that to say I was not disappointed with this book in the slightest, but I will get to that in a moment. First, a little about Pacheco himself. Pacheco was born June 30th, 1939, and passed away January 26th, 2014. He wrote in many different genres, including essays, novels, short stories, and, of course, poetry. He was also the recipient of a number of awards, not least of which was the Miguel de Cervantes Award in 2009 an award that acknowledges the supreme output and quality of written work by an individual in the Spanish language. It is widely considered to be the most prestigious literary award in the Spanish-speaking world. Pacheco was, perhaps, best known for his poetry, though. Not only was he considered to be among the most important Mexican poets in the last half of the 20th century, but he was also deemed one of the most significant contemporary Latin American poets by the Berlin International Literature Festival. Pacheco's writing style is unique. There are some semblances, maybe, to Raymond Carver, or Charles Bukowski. But while these two were considered to be part of the minimalist literary movement in the U.S., Pacheco does something else. He supplies his albeit sparse prose sentences with a kind of linguistic flavor that is not found in these two writers. The edition that I read, of course, is an English translation, and considering how well done the translation is, I can only imagine how beautiful the prose must be for a Spanish reader. Though his sentences are often short and simple, they are not elementary or lazy, Every word of every sentence seems to me a requirement in order for the sentiment to come across. It is as if each sentence is its own event, something I think that springs from his background in poetry. Fernando Melkor, the author of Hurricane Season, another book I am currently reading, wrote of Pacheco's writing style, quote, The reader will note the special magic of Pacheco's writing, that simplicity so deceptive and so masterful. The narrative voice is a well-calibrated device, gliding through the reality of things, Stories and emotions always giving the impression that memory never betrays, close quote. It is clear to me that Battles in the Desert, a very, very short piece of writing, was a piece that Pacheco took extreme care to mold and shape. The story is not even 50 pages in length, but there are so many layers to Pacheco's craftsmanship that it would be an injustice to attempt to capture it all right here. My suspicion here is bolstered by Melkor's words on Pacheco's writing process. Quote, Lengthy prose poems he stripped down in their final versions to pithy lines. Works of his prose fiction went on being refined until the very last day their author was able to revise them. They were edited again and again in a firm rejection of conclusiveness. Quote, I do not accept the idea of a definitive text, close quote. This idea certainly comes through in this book. The plot, if you could call it that, is fairly simple. It is the story of a middle-class child named Carlos and the struggles he faces in a world full of political corruption, natural disasters, and what seems to be a withering sense of national unity in Mexico. One reason for this is because of American enterprise, 
as it relates to Carlos's father's business in the soap business. A large part of the story, at least it seems to me, is a direct critique of American imperialism. And though I found the message surrounding this issue to be interesting, I thought that the idea that a country is imperialistic would need to be afforded more time than was given it in this particular story. It is difficult to drop such large issues in a book that barely breaches the 50-page mark. Additionally, this element of the story did not grab my attention as much as the class-based issues Carlos engaged in with the form of students at his school. As I mentioned a moment ago, Carlos is considered middle class, and this comes to the fore in the form of two classmates, Rosales and Harry. Rosales appears to represent the impoverished community in the area, someone who is consistently the punchline of jokes, and constantly being bullied in school. Carlos is just one of the many classmates who bullies Rosales. When Carlos's father gets wind of what Carlos called Rosales at school, a number of slurs, he suggests that socioeconomic position is relative. That because Carlos can call Rosales a number of slurs, many of which refer to his class status, Carlos is also vulnerable to receiving that same treatment from someone of a higher societal class than he is. In effect, the story is about a boy who is learning where he fits in in the hierarchy of society through what one has and what one does not. This is where Harry comes in. Harry's family is quite wealthy, and Carlos visits Harry's house for dinner one night and is eventually chastised by Harry for eating his steak with a fish fork. There is even a moment when Harry's parents who speak English call Carlos a series of slurs right in front of him. But because Carlos cannot understand English, he is none the wiser. The final child Carlos comes into contact with is his friend Jim, perhaps the most important part of the story, or at least it is for me. Carlos visits Jim's home and almost immediately is taken by Jim's mother, a beautiful woman in her late 20s. This is perhaps the heart of the story, even. Carlos falls in love with his best friend's mother and does everything he can to keep this bit of information from his friend. He, at one point, sneaks out of school and visits Jim's house to tell Jim's mother that he loves her. When the school learns that he has skipped class, Carlos's parents learn of what he did. And I will stop here for those who intend to read this little book. This small story is one about nationalism, culture, and ultimately how one young child chooses to proceed in a world that is being torn apart at the seams. It would be easy to dismiss this world as a cruel place if there was nothing beautiful in it, but Jim's mother is one dimension that prevents Carlos from throwing in the towel, so to speak. It seems that Carlos's infatuation is one way he attempts to subvert or get out from under the crumbling world around him. There was an element of the story, at least for me, that communicated the beauty of the world despite the ugliness of it. I have been thinking about this for a few days now, since I finished the book. I think there is something true about that. Foundationally true. Fundamentally true. It is easy to call attention to the negative elements of day-to-day life, but the implication of doing so robs you of what is good about it. There are innumerable reasons to be unhappy and frustrated with the way things are. But there is certainly an argument to be made for that which provides happiness and contentment no matter how small, even if doing so results in tragedy. The dimension of the book that worked best for me was the fact that it was told from a child's point of view. I do not think the story would have been as impactful had it been told from an adult's perspective. Children typically do not moderate their thoughts in the same way adults do. This is also why some of Bukowski's material works better. It is told from the viewpoint of a child. After having a few days to reflect on the work, the most compelling part, at least for me, was the writing style. Nevertheless, I understand the appeal of the book and why it is considered a national treasure. If you enjoyed this review, and by extension this podcast, please consider supporting me through Patreon. New episodes air every week on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I also have a YouTube channel where I talk about books, philosophy, 
and what is going on in my own reading life. If you have any questions or concerns, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at the Last Sisyphus, or shoot me an email at Colin, C-O-L-L-I-N, Jones, the number 15, at protonmail.com. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.